Green Street Joinery and the American Craftsman Podcast are proud to partner with Montana Brand Tools. Montana Brand Tools are manufactured by Rocky Mountain Twist in Montana, USA. With numerous patents dating back to the invention of the Hexshank system by our founders, we strive to produce accessories that add precision, flexibility, and efficiency to your toolkit. In addition to woodworking tools, we produce many high-quality cutting tools that are used by the aerospace, medical, automotive, and industrial markets. Our end product has a fit and finish that is beyond comparison. Montana Brand Tools are guaranteed for life to be free of defects in material and workmanship because we build these tools with pride and determination. For 10% off your order, visit MontanaBrandTools.com and use the coupon code AmericanCraftsman. Well, folks, here we go. We're uh, we're jumping in. This is what, week f- well, 14? It, it would have been, let's see, 4, 8. It would have been, um, well, it would have been 13, right? Yeah, so this is 14. It's 14, okay. I wasn't sure how many extras we had. Oh, I know why I made it 15, because we were going to do um, a Christmas episode. Uh, that so. would actually be this episode. <clears throat> yeah, that would be. Yeah. I mean, it's not too late. We haven't started yet. <laughs> I don't know what we're going to talk about. For- we we don't really have we don't have any inf- yeah. information on that episode. Yeah. Well, tomorrow's Christmas. Uh, Merry Christmas. Yeah, yeah. Merry Christmas to all, and to all. Good night. <laughs> so this is episode it's actually fourteen. Fourteen. Two. So we'll go fourteen to seventeen. Not that changing this on here is going to accomplish anything, yeah. but so we're we're into the federal period. Yeah, we're out of that boring Pennsylvania Dutch period. Um. And the the first one is usually, you know, we set this we set the the stage for um the time period, who was involved, and and all that stuff, just to kind of um you know, give everybody an idea of what's going on. And yep. um so even though we 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 kinda know what the federal period is named after, it's you know, the Revolutionary War ends, mm-hmm. and so now America is is America. It's the United States, and, and we have a federal government. So um, it's 1783. The Treaty of Paris ends the American Revolution, and we have the United States of America. Uh, the war-ravaged country was given the chance to begin and to build its own government, Constitution and traditions, and the so-called federal period began, roughly running from 1780 to 1820. Hmm. So that's uh, the time period. We're really only looking at about 40 years, um, and and you see a lot of these things overlap. That's that's one thing I noticed. It's funny, you know. A lot of times you forget that the Revolutionary War happened after 1776. <laughs> that's right. It's like that's what started the war yes. was the Declaration of Independence. When we right. take it like, yeah, the country was formed in 1776. Yeah. Like, wow, right? Technically, <laughs> like if you ask people on the street, like one of those late night shows, and they, and you ask them when was George Washington elected president. What would they probably say? Uh, 1851. <laughs> no, no they, would, they would probably say 1776. Well, you'd be lucky if they yeah. even could get that. <laughs> but but Washington's elected president in 1789. Wow. Uh, yeah. You know, so we don't even have our first real president until 1789. Then we got, he runs two, he serves for two terms. Then you got John Adams with Jefferson as his vice president for a term. Then Thomas Jefferson for two terms and James Madison uh, for the final term. Those are our, the four presidents during this federal period. I wonder what, uh, what their taglines were. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder if John Adams ran and said, make America great again. <laughs> That Washington guy screwing everything up. <laughs> I don't think it there was as much mudslinging going on back then, but it could be wrong. Yeah. Um. And so James Madison he co-authors the Federalist Papers with John Jay and the now famous Alexander Hamilton. You know every, the the Broadway play 
brought Hamilton into popular culture. Mm. You know, only the history nerds knew mostly of Hamilton. And is John Jay who the college is named? That's after? it, John Jay. Yeah, John Jay College of Law in in New York. Um, <clears throat> now I taught history. And I didn't even remember that the Federal's papers were 85 essays. Wow. So um, there was a lot going on back then as the government's forming that it it's these things are still going on now. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at our politics, the there was a group that wanted more like uh, states rights, we'll call it. That's the simplest way to put it. Yeah. And. Those who that was the Articles of Confederation, where you had the Confederation of States, mm -hmm. each having um, more power, and then there were the Federalists who wanted the the federal government, the overarching government, to have more power, um, and that's what the Federalist Papers were about. Right, it was you know trying to um, convince the people who had the power to to vote on this that the federal government was the way to go with with more powers. Hmm. Um, so let's take a look at what's going on in 1800. Uh, the second U.S. census shows there's 5,308,000 and change people. Wow. So we have almost 5.5 million people living in uh, America, the United States, and uh, about one in six of those are slaves. Wow. That's... That's pretty sobering, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, almost a million slaves out of five million people. Now, is that taken into account the, um, was it the three-fifths? Is that what's? Yeah. I, I don't know. The three-fifths compromise, I think, happens later on as, um, you know, the states are joining the union. Right. Yeah, so if you don't know, the three-fifths compromise said that, like, a, a slave was only considered three-fifths in the, oh. in the census. was. <laughs> so you have five slaves. They only count that as three people in the census. Right, right. It was all because the number of people who lived somewhere um, meant they had more representation right. in the government. So, Which is still, still true. <laughs> right. That's how the census is how... Um, you know, funding is distributed to different states and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, when you think about our history, it's it's fraught with all of these, um, you know, details that we kind of have chosen to forget and overlook. Um, so uh, the Northwest Territory is formed out of, well, Indiana is formed out of the Northwest Territory. Oh, I misspelled Northwest, the Northwest Territory. Hey, you got a, you got spell check turned off on your computer. Oh, no wonder. <laughs> See, I got all these red lines. You got nothing yeah. over there. <laughs> no, <laughs> no wonder I have so many mistakes. So Indiana Territory, I mean, it's not even a state yet. Um, I was trying to remember which states were around, of mm -hmm. course, all the Northeast. And I was surprised that Kentucky was one of the states. Hmm. Um, yeah, so you have the whole Atlantic seaboard yep. and Kentucky. Um, and the Treaty of Mortefontaine is signed with France. Mm. I, I never heard of this, ending the Quasi-War. That's actually what it was called. It was a naval battle. It was basically an undeclared war because the government, Congress, didn't have the right to declare war yet huh. in 1800. And it was fought along the East Coast and the Caribbean. And it was because the U.S. stopped repaying the loans that France made during the revolution. Oh, that's a bold move. <laughs> yeah. I mean, more nonsense, right? It's yeah, like, not paying. <laughs> one in six uh, people are slaves, and we're not paying France yeah. back. It, it's a glorious beginning, isn't it? We're gonna go. Uh, we're gonna file for bankruptcy. <laughs> I keep losing my mouse. There it is. All right. Um, uh, closer to what we're gonna get into is the the uh, industrial revolution mm -hmm. is starting to hit. 
the United States. Um, in 1790, the first factory appears in Rhode Island, in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. Mm. It's a it's a spinning mill, a cotton spinning mill. Um, you know, because as we know from uh, grade school and such, uh, 1798, the cotton gin. Eli Whitney. Yeah. <laughs> we just, like, spent way too much time talking about that in school. Like, I mean, that was the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, but still. The well, fact that I can yeah. remember Eli Whitney and that's completely insignificant to anything that I need to know. currently right. Yeah. But, you know, growing cotton in the South is, you know, it's part of the, the triangle of trade that... Mm -hmm. um, helps America grow. The iron industry starts growing in Pennsylvania. Yep. Um, and canal and railway construction begins. Yeah, we just rode along the DNR Canal. Yeah, yeah. I wonder when that... I want to look that up. The DNR Canal. I I remember reading that, um, like, the Erie Canal, which was one of the first biggies. Yep. It sped up... Um, Transportation of goods like ninety percent. Oh yeah, it, it was you know some amazing thing. The Delaware and Raritan Canal is a canal in central New Jersey, United States, built in the eighteen thirties, served to connect Delaware River to the Raritan River. Uh, efficient and reliable means of transportation of freight between Philadelphia and New York City, especially coal from the anthracite fields in eastern Pennsylvania. Yeah, cool. I mean. It's one of the reasons that New York grew. I when I was looking at the census, New York was by far the most populous mm -hmm. state. In fact, even without the upstate counties, it was still the most populous. Well, wow. um, and a lot of that was spurred on by the canals that brought all that, all the you know the ease of access into New York Harbor. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, they would literally have, like, a barge, and they would have, whether it was horses, or I think typically it was, like, oxen mm -hmm. or mules and stuff on the sides, and they'd pull these barges down these canals. Yeah. And they could, you know, cover a lot more land that way, because they're not, there's no roads. I mean, think about it. Yeah. <laughs> Couple of, you know, like, pack animals mm -hmm. pulling a boat down the, down the water. I shouldn't say there was no roads, but the roads yeah. were, you know. Yeah, it's, I mean, obviously there was no uh, mechanized transportation. Right. So, <clears throat> so let's recap where we are with our furniture. Uh, we started with early American, mm -hmm. 1640 to 1700, then colonial, 1700 to 1780. Um, our last series, the Pennsylvania Dutch, 1720 to 1830, which you see overlaps completely the federal period of 1780 to 1820. Yep. Um, so let's get into it. Yeah, wow. Pennsylvania Dutch is a big swath of colonial and the federal. Yeah, exactly. And as uh, we probably, those of our loyal listeners will remember that it really wasn't even noted until like 100 years after. After it, it ended. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so federal furniture refers to American furniture produced during the federal period and named after the Federalist era in American politics. That's that's hard to say. Federalist. Federalist. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> <laughs> so we're referencing the period following the Revolutionary War, really, rather than one specific style of furniture. Um, although as we get into it, we'll see that there's definitely, um, uh, some, uh, strong characteristics from this period mm -hmm. and it, it, it's, it's lived on. I mean, you can still find like if you Google Federalist furniture, you'll find shops and big companies that specialize in oh, this, yeah. Yeah. you know, our buddy Robert Bliss, I know does a lot of federal yeah, stuff. Yeah. The federal is coming back. They say. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of federal architecture. I will say yes. that. A ton of federal architecture still mm -hmm. around. Uh, so um, the decorative arts at this time moves away from the ornate look um, 
We that Rococo piece. Let's see. We'll open up that link. Here, here. And for our uh, patrons, they can have a copy of this, and you'll see all of the uh, links. So, what know, Rococo means in relation to antique furniture? The Spruce Crafts. <laughs> Look at that. That's yeah. who we uh, stole the toy periods from. That's right. Spruce Crafts is actually a pretty good uh, reference source. Um, Surprisingly use, enough, the name makes it sound I know, awfully suspect. Uh, but uh, there's them, Wikipedia, Britannic, Britannica, Study.com is another biggie that I've been using. I had to actually create an account for them. Remember LexisNexis? <laughs> that was a good one. That you had to pay for. Yeah, I I got an educator. I signed up for an educator <laughs> for Study.com. It was free, but, yeah. you know. We're educating. We are. So If anybody asks, just, you know what to say. <laughs> uh, you can see that. For those of you who are watching, most people probably are listening. That's what our data shows us. Yeah. But, um, Might as well save these while I'm at it. Yeah, you know, the Chippendale was one of the biggies from uh, the colonial period where he's introducing curves and uh, in this Rococo example, there's a lot of carvings, which federal employees, mm -hmm. it's just not in the same manner. Yeah. Yeah, this is uh, definitely reminiscent of the Chippendale stuff. Mm -hmm. Kind of got this here, which which is similar to like a block and shell kind of thing going on. Yep. It's that's it's a nice piece. I mean, yeah. just the grain in the in the wood and that um and it's in the face of it. It's I mean, obviously they picked something beautiful. <laughs> Almost <laughs> looks like I mean, this has the grain of cherry. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably mahogany, but um I'll mention it as we get down to it in the notes, but darker woods were really favored during mm -hmm. the federal period. And uh, cherry was actually one of the, one of the common woods used cherry and walnut, I believe that nice red, red colored cherry. <laughs> <laughs> so um, people like cherry. They don't even know it. We went up to this job. Yeah, I laugh because it's so true. And uh, up in Closter, which is far. Yeah. And, uh, they, you know, the designer has these, whatever, inspiration boards. Or yes, I don't know. yes. That's, the, that's what they are. And they have a swatch of this thing, and they're like, yeah, we don't know what it is, but they like this. <laughs> like, it was so blatant. Like, that's cherry. cherry. I thought it was, because I sent her pictures of this and these. Yeah. Because uh, the other job with the solid cherry cabinets, mm -hmm. I sent pictures of these as examples and, and my bed. And it looked it looked just like one of it these. It does. I'm like, that's cherry. Like, people like cherry. They just think that they don't. Right, because most of it that they see in the store is this awful red stain. Fake cherry. It's it's maple with red stain on it. Yeah, and you know, maple is so difficult to stain well too. Yeah, there, I think typically it's really just like a tinted lacquer. Yeah. Um. So what are the hallmarks of the federal period and its furniture? Um, it's characterized by sharp geometric forms, legs that are usually straight mm -hmm. rather than curved, and a biggie is the contrasting veneers and the geometric inlay patterns um, on otherwise flat surfaces. Pictorial motifs mm. when extant. I had to look up what the word extant meant. Surviving. <laughs> Surviving, right. So it, <laughs> pictorial motifs usually reference the new federal government with symbols such as the eagle. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of patriotic imagery in in the, um, the marquetry and things like right. that. The inlays, the eagle with the shields. Yeah. Um, Federal furniture tends to emphasize basic geometric shapes, generally squares, circles, triangles, rectangles. It's usually refined and well-crafted with clean edges and straight lines. 
That's important since the idea is to create something rational, cool, and contained. I like the I like the sound of it. Yeah, yeah. Additional features like tapered legs are also common as they may evoke the sense of a classical column. Federal furniture obeys the basic aesthetics of classical art and architecture, but with modern comforts in mind. Classical forms were defined by the rational use of geometric shapes, a strong devotion to symmetry, and a cool sense of order and logical design. Sounds a lot like what we try and do. It, I, I think that often, you know, you can see how, even though we don't work in this uh, vernacular, is that the right use of that word? Even uh, we don't yeah. work in this style. You can see how a lot of this seeps in, and mm -hmm. and it wouldn't just be us. It would be everybody who's building furniture. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you see this common thread that if you if you are a furniture maker and a real furniture maker, there's this certain set of ideals and sort of goals that everybody shares. Mm -hmm. um, you know, no one's trying to create something that's disordered and illogical. <laughs> At least I hope not. No, but... You could see that um, they're they're thinking of um, the the design and is is influenced by the the sensibilities of this new nation that's forming, right? Right. Which is interesting in and of itself. It's what you had to draw <clears throat> inspiration from before there was Pinterest. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> Be making some effed up furniture if you were using the federal government as a oh yeah as inspiration imagine, now. Imagine that now. Yeah, just it's just a couch on fire. <laughs> You're on this morning. <laughs> so according to the Columbus Museum, I'm citing my source here. There are several clues that a piece of furniture is from the federal period or at least inspired by it. We got uh, contrasted dark and light veneers. Mm -hmm. This is something I didn't know. Light blue interiors. Huh. Clean edges, straight lines, and the carvings. The, um, it's, it's a bigger part of federal period furniture than I uh, originally thought. Mm -hmm. But you could see the, um, the link to the classic and by classic, we usually refer back to, like, Roman and Greek times. Yep. Ribbons, swags, fruit baskets. The hell's grapes. a swag? Swag is like, you know, that, like a curtain swag, you know, like. Oh, uh, okay. <clears throat> not like the, the modern. Like having swag. Swag, yeah. Wheat shafts, half moons. There's our, our patriotic eagle, mm -hmm. the cornucopia. Uh, bell flowers. I'm not sure. I guess that means a flower with like a bell shape. I don't know. Yeah. Here's one for you. You know the Fruit of the Loom logo? Yeah. Is there a cornucopia in it? Yeah. There's yeah. not. There's not. It's, no. It's just the fruit? It's just the fruit. That's one of those things. That's, yeah, it's a Mandela, another Mandela effect. Oh, man. Explain what the Mandela effect is. Uh, Mandela effect is like, maybe we could cover this on the Patreon. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, but I'll give you a quick... Uh, well, here, let me, there's, I'm sure there's somebody who has. <laughs> Describes it really well. Yeah, so that I don't have to try and. <laughs> Search for words. Yeah, that, it's a really cool thing. Yeah, and it's, um, you know, most of it is, and probably all of it is. Uh, uh, in 2010, this shared false memory phenomenon was dubbed the Mandela Effect by self-described paranormal consultant Fiona Broom in reference to her false memory of the death of South African anti-apartheid leader Nelson Mandela in prison in the 1980s. He actually died in 2013. It's uh, the idea that there's this collective false memory of different things, like a uh, big one is the Bernstein Bears. <laughs> if you're my age, you know, and you're... you're mid-30s, you remember these books growing up, and they're still around, the Berenstain Bears. But it's not the Berenstain Bears, it's the Berenstain Bears. Yeah. <laughs> with an A. Um, there's all kinds of stuff. The Another big one is the, uh, there people remember this movie with uh, Sinbad called, uh, 
Shazam, something like that. Yeah. Where he was like a, a genie. It doesn't exist. <laughs> so there's all That's kinds. That's the thing. It's that it's a collective. Right. I mean, it's, it, it re, it's a powerful thing because it incorporates so many mm-hmm. people. Yeah. So another one is the <laughs> Fruit of the Loom logo. I remembered it as having a cornucopia. Mm-hmm. You did. Yeah. There's no cornucopia. There's no record of there ever being a cornucopia. <laughs> but there's all there's there's other things too. Like there's articles that that uh, infer that there were you know maybe someone was writing about something with Fruit of Loom and they like inferred something about a cornucopia. Mm-hmm. So there's all these weird. But the picture itself. Yeah. No cornucopia. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the carvings again include the cornucopia. Some bell flowers, fans, drapery, which is kind of like the swag, except straight down, urns and shields. Uh, so this was pretty interesting too. Why does the federal period uh, look the way it does? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. So in the mid 18th century, we're talking about the the mid 1700s. Europe was becoming more and more fascinated with ancient Rome. The reason was, pretty simple, archaeological excavations. (laughs) Well, tongue-tied. Expectations. In 1748, uncovered the buried city of Pompeii, Uh. giving people a glimpse into Roman life. So if we all kind of know, but I'll uh, I'll spell it out. Pompeii was uh, buried by Vesuvius, the volcano. Mm Mm-hmm. And so in 1748, it's uncovered for the first time, and people are seeing what life was like because it froze this moment in time. That was what, like 600? <clears throat> 600 AD or something? You know, I should have looked that up. Yeah. We can get that quickly. Yeah. So uh, each nation in Europe handles this new fascination in a different way. Um now, since most Roman monuments are made of stone, and even seventy-nine A.D. seventy-nine A.D., so it's basically a long you know, time ago, two thousand, you know, fifteen. Yeah, beginning of uh, the current. Uh, what do they call that? Uh, um, C.E. current uh, 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 eon era. Current era. Yeah, there you go. So. Um, how does neoclassicism translate into interior furnishings? Uh, neoclassicism meaning like a new classic. So for the British, the revival in Roman interest was largely handled by architect Robert Adam. Adam, he toured Rome in the 1750s, then spent time observing how the rest of Europe was handling uh, this neoclassical movement. And, uh, you know, which hawkins back to greece and rome mm-hmm. and he brings all this information back to england and through his work as an architect he develops this uh, distinct form of neoclassicism <laughs> neoclassicism now called adamesque mm. <laughs> you notice people they, they really love naming stuff after themselves yeah, don't man. they talk about uh <clears throat> uh you know what I'm saying? Whatever yeah. that word is. <laughs> Everybody, <laughs> that guy, that guy—that's another one named after the person. Yeah. So this style is very popular in England, but by the time it gets to America, um, uh, you know, America is rejecting British ideas. Mm-hmm. So Adam Esk didn't really enter America until uh, after the end of the American Revolution. Um, you know, thirty some odd years after the time it hits uh, Britain. Right. Um, and it sort of does peak interest in America, not because it was British, but because now America wants to compare itself to Rome. Right. Um, they, we, the, it's funny to think of, but young America wanted to create a direct parallel between uh, themselves and the last great republic of European history, which is the Roman Republic. Yeah, it looks like we're following the same path now. <laughs> we're going yeah. to crash and burn. 
<clears throat> you know, we often cite that, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. So American neoclassicism, oh, that was pretty good. American neoclassicism flourished as a way to encourage civic and national pride in the republic. Creating a civic society meant feeling every aspect with reminders of this proud legacy. And so Adamesque furnishings were adopted, altered, translated into a distinct version of American neoclassical furniture, perfect for the homes of patriotic Republican citizens. Man, that sounds like some <laughs> propaganda. <laughs> this was the federal style. Um, so where is this happening? Obviously, we're talking about America, but and I touched on it earlier. Um, federal furniture took off in the U.S. around 1789. Um, again, when the Federalists were, you know, duking it out with the anti-Federalists over what the new American government should take. Mm -hmm. And um, furniture was most, <clears throat> excuse me, I might have to get some uh, some water. This furniture is most sought after in large cities and port towns along the U.S. Boston, Philly, New York, Baltimore, and Charleston, South Carolina are sort of the hotbeds hmm. of federal furniture. And these towns are home to uh, many wealthy people. They still had significant ties to Europe, so they're going to be, you know, uh, information doesn't travel the way it does now. Right. So... Um, the, the regular guy on the street, he has no clue what's going on in Europe, but if Sounds you're familiar, <laughs> you, know, you know, the more it's things like we're on change, episode four already, the more, the more they stay the same. Here's what I want to know. Why is it saying that you spelled two wrong? <clears throat> These towns were home to many wealthy people. Huh? Maybe it's a, it's a bad sentence construction. I keep losing my goddamn mouse. Yeah. Yeah, these towns were home to many wealthy. No. Why, yeah, why does it want to do that? It's yeah, that, trying to change it to home T-O-O -O, many. Yeah, that's... So I had it right there. These towns are home... These towns were home to many wealthy people with significant ties to Europe. You know, their business dealings. Uh, America and Britain, the the even though they're separate nations now, the... The money is changing hands all the time. Yeah. You know, business and industry are important. They're important partners. So uh, not only were these uh, cities important um, centers for the people who, who bought and, and used this furniture, but they also became important cities for the manufacture of those pieces. Uh, so who... Who was, who are the big names? Um, there's two English furniture designer cabinet makers primarily credited with bringing federal style furniture to America. And um, furniture nerds will have heard of these people. And to some lesser extent, the general public will have heard these names and maybe not known who they are. Mm -hmm. We have George Heppelwhite and Thomas Sheridan. And we're going to see some uh, parallels between these guys and Chippendale. Because uh, George Heppelwhite, uh, in 1788, uh, he writes a book, The Cabinet Maker and Upholsterer's Guide, and Thomas Sheraton, The Cabinet Maker and Upholsterer's Drawing Book. Man, they were some original... Uh... <coughs> <laughs> and the titles are nothing to get excited about. Chippendale, the gentleman and cabinet maker's director. I know. They're like, let's change out gentleman for upholsterer and flip it. So these guys had such a huge influence that uh, sometimes federal furniture's referred to as Heppelwhite and Sheraton style. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting to note that the influence of both Heppelwhite and Sheraton are as designers and not as cabinet makers. Um, most sources that I used and uh, could, could find stated that there are no 
surviving examples that can be directly attributed to either man, meaning they built them themselves. Well. Rather, the furniture survived and thrived. Uh, what, that It was built in the styles that they illustrated and directed in their books. Hmm. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Because um, up till now, um, people of note were, were guys that built the, the furniture. Right. Yeah, uh, Chippen, maybe Chippendale was the guy that kind of, because he had a whole crew of people underneath of him. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe he was the beginning of that where he was doing a lot of design work, but not quite as much building. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I put a little note here to remind myself and uh, the audience that uh, it's about 30, it's 34 years since Chippendale's book. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's a pretty good amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's probably dead by by then. (laughs) You got to figure in those days, that's almost two generations. Yeah. Those are big shoes to fill. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, I did come across, uh, somebody who's pretty noteworthy. It's John and Thomas Seymour of Boston. They're a father and son and they were actual cabinet makers. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's a link down there, their Seymour dressing table. They actually built in the style of oh. um, Heppelwhite and Sheridan, but they had also their own take on it. And, and that's a, a pretty nice piece. I mean, yeah. it's like figured mahogany. <clears throat> it's, it's gorgeous. Um, you can see there's the carving in the legs. Mm-hmm. They're straight rather than curved, but yeah. um, which I like. I, I'm not big on like no, the cabriole legs and these curved legs. It gives a weird stance. Yeah, yeah. The curve was uh, only added up there in the mirror. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these uh, scrolls. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. The scroll work there. I mean, look at the figure in the frame. Yeah, they started working in veneers, and um, you can see it in the drawer fronts there. I love this. I, I'm, I know there's a name for it. I'm not sure what oh, it is. Oh, that little round. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder what that's called. They have it on, like, these tea tables, too. It's like where you put your cup. Mm-hmm. Ah. Yeah, that's that's a gorgeous piece of furniture. Mm-hmm. Um, that, I mean, I know that, uh, a lot of the source material I use is probably citing the same, um, deeper source material, but that picture came up quite often, yeah. uh, for the Seymours. They related I, to the Flanagans? <laughs> the Ray Morton the Flanagans? Ash, the Ashleys? <laughs> No, I doubt it. <laughs> oh, man. So, um, the dressing table with mirror features Thomas Seymour's meticulous construction details, his adaptations of English Regency style, and blister-figured that was maple veneer. Wow. Which, you know, that's the thing, that maple gets so dark after a couple hundred years. Yeah, well, and you see it's got, like, it looks like shellac, probably. Yes, yes, yes. So it's got a nice amber-orange right. kind of hue to it. Um, And it's, uh, oh, which has the figure locally dramatized by scorching with a hot iron. Hmm. Interesting, right? Thermally modified. Thermally modified. And Seymour's favorite carver, the English immigrant Thomas Whiteman, contributed leafage carving to lyre supports for the dressing glass, blossom and seed carvings, and dressing chest legs. Hmm. Oh, that's the end of our uh, hour. Wow. Did did we make it? Well, we're at 38 minutes. Oh. Man, I looked blew- at the clock before. It was like a half hour. I'm like, man, we're going to run long <coughs> on this one. But we could discuss uh, We could discuss these uh, cabinet makers. Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, we're going to go through it in, in the next episode. 
Is it the next episode where we um, talk about the the cabinet makers? No, we talk uh, about the furniture. So it'll be in two episodes. Yeah. But um, uh, there was something I wanted to bring up about. Oh, Sheraton is actually considered one of the periods of furniture. Yep. But it's totally a subset of federal furniture. Hmm. Um, so that that's the next one. Yeah, it is. But I couldn't really find because I, I, you know, once I was wrapping this one up, mm-hmm. the thing that I found most was it was the most copied style. Like his book was so big and popular that it's the most uh, copied federal style. Hmm. Yeah, so maybe federal is really <clears throat> most of what was going on in that time period was actually what they would consider Sheridan. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is just a style of federal furniture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's weird. Um, you know, we don't know how the how the the big wigs get together and made these classifications. Yeah. Um, like why the Pennsylvania Dutch became uh, one of the important movements. Big wigs over there at Spruce Crafts. <laughs> where, where do you think charcuterie's going to? Uh... <laughs> I'm gonna say that's coming in about 1990. No, 2009. You, you know what's interesting to think? Um, well, what was the last big movement? That we could think of it would it be mid-century. I mean, what comes after mid-century? Is uh, it just a rehash of everything after that? No, I mean, there's been contemporary styles. I don't know if they've yeah. been. Maybe they just haven't been named yet. Right. I mean, you could think about the '90s and the early 2000. You know, '90s style furniture like, like the shabby chic. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I think of like. My, it's still at my parents' house, like my sister's bedroom set, like this whitewashed, like, I, I don't even know what the hell you would call it. Was it distressed? No, no. Yeah, I wonder in a hundred years' time if we uh, if we make it, what, we're, what people are going to be talking about. It, uh, you know, there can't only be 12 periods by then. There's going to have to be more added to it right um and is there going to be something significant you know come out of this let's see if i can find yeah everything had like that pickled look to mm-hmm. it like that uh, whitewashed is not what I'm... yeah because everything it's sort of like i mean almost like music it's it's taking stuff and and reimagining things that have happened and sort mm-hmm. of combining and recombining. Let's see if I can find. I'm not having any luck, but yeah, I mean, like something like that. Mm-hmm. That's very nineties looking. Not to finish, but Yeah. Um There you go. Honey pine. Honey pine. That's undeniably nineties. <laughs> yeah. But you see it's kinda of got some shaker influence That's to it. That's what I was gonna say. When you look back, you're gonna you know is there going to be, uh, will they say? That's <laughs> 70s. The, the 70s yeah, bolstered I mean, sofa. I mean, I guess as woodworkers. The 70s definitely had a style, too. I mean, that wasn't <clears throat> mid-century or even anything resembling. Right. It, I, as woodworkers, we're kind of, um, you know, we immediately go to that style where it's predominantly wood. But you think about the 70s, it went to that big upholstered look. Mm-hmm. And maybe it'd have like those little pieces of wood in the front. Yeah. Yep. Um what will they say about the the seventies couch with the plaid uh 
pillows and um, the crocheted blanket. Uh. I mean, I think it's like anything. Like the nice examples are are always going to be nice, mm-hmm. but the run of the mill <laughs> BS is always going to yeah. be junk. Yeah, you know that's a great uh, thought because. We're looking at the surviving pieces that are considered probably the finest examples mm-hmm. of the work and going, ooh, ah, it would be nice to look, look at some of the, the stuff that was done by, you know, Joe Cabinet Shop yeah. on the corner. The stuff that fell apart, you yeah, know, after. Yeah, didn't, didn't make it. Yeah. Yeah, this is just the stuff that people found nice enough to hold on to and to care for and was built well enough to survive 300 years. Yeah, there must have been some hacks back then, too. Oh, God, I'm sure. Um, You know, you think there were, uh, like, you know, your equivalents? I wonder if they spray-painted their tools green. (laughs) There there was no spray paint, but... (laughs) Milk paint. Milk milk painted green. Hope nobody takes all these combination squares. (laughs) Better paint them green. (laughs) <laughs> what what would be the equivalent equivalent tools? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Painted all my pencils. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder what they were using as were they using strictly marking knives? Marking knives, probably, tools? yeah. I mean they did ha- they had they had pencils back then? When was a pencil um, invented? Yeah, that's a good question. When was Invented. 1795. Right. So we are scientists serving the army of Napoleon Bonaparte invented it. It's probably safe to say that pencils are not a part of the cabinet maker's uh, tool chest at, at this point in time. Yeah. Maybe the federal period. Maybe once we get into the, the next couple, what's after Sheridan? Um, I can't remember. Um, yeah. No, we could we could uh, we could save that in the bank. Yeah, in the vault. You have to tune in six weeks from now to find out. <laughs> Ten weeks from now. Um. So, what'd you think of uh, of this uh, initial episode? Uh, interesting. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing more examples and uh, yeah, there's a lot. There are a lot of um, links in the in the coming episodes. Yep. As yeah, I very... say that, I don't. Uh, where are they? Um. Oh, there's some. Um... Oh yeah, it's funny. Some of them aren't blue. Ah. See, like this one's blue. Yeah. These ones aren't. Oh, yeah, the ones that are like that where it says, like, Federal Desk, mm-hmm. I renamed them. Uh, and the ones that are in blue are from the source material. The ones that I, I put in, I... Oh, so this, like, you that's pasted. Yeah, I yeah, see, I yeah, see. That, yeah, that, yeah. So that's from the source material, and then the other ones, I went out and uh, found them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this episode's coming out the day... Jesus, the hell. Coming out the day before uh, Christmas. Wow. On Christmas Eve, I guess you Everybody's could Everybody's nestled say. in their beds. They're drinking their hot cocoa. Mm-hmm. They're, they're uh, going to be dreaming of federal-style furniture. And sugar plums. And, yeah, and, uh, and uh, all the veneer work and mm-hmm. uh, tapered legs. <laughs> You know, I, I, the one thing I like doing all this research and, um, and doing these, I do miss the, the weekly feedback from, uh, from our listeners. Yeah. That's the, that's the only uh, thing, you know, where we had, uh, more of, um, a timely kind of, uh, uh, give and take. Yeah. 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 It would be nice to hear like, uh, um, people write in and, we would be able to respond to like, you know, uh, questions or comments. Nothing's stopping them. Yeah. What, what happened to our listeners? I don't know. Are they out there? They're out there. Mm, people are still listening. 
They got the riders block? According to the statistics. Are we still big in Slovenia? Slovakia? Yeah, I think so. We're big in China now, apparently. Number 56. Wow. Uh, we must be on the government list. Yeah, better watch out. <laughs> we're, we're, we're influencers Especially now in that they're cozying up with Russia. <laughs> well, on that note, I think we'll call it a day. All right. Um. Yeah. Thanks for, oh, well, we will tell you guys, hey, get yourself a little Christmas present. Head over to rpmcodingsolutions.com. Get yourself some vesting finishes. Yeah, we're big fans. Yeah, we, we got more on the way. Well, we will have had it now. <clears throat> yes. That you listen to this. Um, get some more in for some samples. Uh, we're going to start messing around with some of these colored LED oils. Uh, we got more of the clear coming in because that's our bread and butter. We're, we're still running on the first can, so you're afraid of the cost. Don't yeah, be. don't be. Because be. we finished, uh, you know, a lot. Yeah, we, I, I mean, sizable projects. Yeah, yeah, I mean, a, a, a ton. We we finished a ton of stuff with one of the cans of the LED finish. Right, so. we're not talking about, like, a, just a couple of boards or something no. like that. And uh, even the small can, you know, that did all the new stuff for the for the church. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, and they're still finishing there. Yeah, yeah. So it, it goes a long way. A little goes a long way. Um, I mean, that's part of the key of putting on a finish like that anyway. Right, yeah, because, you know, you put too much on, it's just it's going into the garbage. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, use the coupon code American Craftsman. You save yourself 10% there. It helps out the podcast Um, because we are affiliates with Vesting Finishes, and we use it in the shop. So check yeah. it out. All right. Merry Christmas. Yeah. We'll see you next week uh, on, yeah, must, must be New Year's Eve the next, next one. Next week will be New Year's Eve. Yeah. I hope everybody's sober enough to, to learn and uh, listen. Well, come out at 5 a.m. if you're <laughs> you starting early. If you're toasted by then. Yeah, you're in trouble. <laughs> it depends where you work. That's true. <laughs> you might have to show up at work, you know, a little greased. I lost my mouse again. All right, we'll see you guys next week. Take care.